welcome back aboard the Starlight Car. I'm Elvie, and I will be your host for the hour. I had a talk with Eric Robles and Dan Milano, the showrunners behind Glitch Text, an animated series that follows a group of people who try to keep the peace in our reality as video game characters break out of their worlds and cause havoc. Our intro music is a remix of Aquamarine by Magic Circuit, available on our self-titled album, Magic Circuit. You can follow and support Magic Circuit on Apple Music, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you like what we do here in the Starlight Car, check out videogamechoochoo.com for content like this and more. And if you really, really like us, and are able to express that love through an extra dime or more, you can also consider donating and giving us a tip or two at patreon.com slash VGCC. With all that said, it looks like we're ready for departure, so sit back, relax, and enjoy your time. We're always happy to have you. I am Dan Milano. I'm the co-creator and co-executive producer of uh, Glitch Text, and I also play um, Bit and some of the creatures on the show. Uh, and I am Eric Robles, and I am the co-creator, executive producer of Glitch Text, and I do not play a voice on the show. Uh, I only play one in production. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for um, you know taking your time out to chat with me today. Uh, can you talk to me about you know, your respective careers and journey and how you got here, you know, how you got to the animation industry or like how things have you done before you got here and what led you to it? Eric, you want to start that? Oh man, my, my, I, I base mine off of yours, Dan. So if yours is nice yeah. and short, I'll keep mine nice and short. So yeah, it's true. Cause Eric has a very long and, and interesting story. Um, well, for myself, I, I got into the industry by being just a child who is fascinated with, um, uh, writing. I got my first video camera when I was 12 and I started making videos and I did a lot with puppets. Um, I like to draw. Uh, eventually I did, you know, make a great deal of videos with my friends all the way up through um, high school. And then I was able to attend undergraduate at New York University for film and television and um, met a lot of people there, mostly just more friends, to be honest. Um, and we created a public access show called Junk Tape, where we had created a puppet character named Greg the Bunny. And so Greg the Bunny was a character that we really enjoyed producing for. And eventually we were lucky enough to be able to get this character onto the independent film channel where we did short interstitials. And believe it or not, it just through a really amazing series of events and with the help of some good people we were able to get Greg the Bunny as a television show on the Fox uh, network and so I got a really quick lesson in how to produce for television and because I played the character I also had a part on the show and things kind of tangentized from there I became very interested in voiceover, live action, animation, uh, writing for features in TV and got all kinds of various odd jobs in with different partners and different studios um but in animation uh the most recent things i did were um i wrote for uh the series robot chicken uh a undeveloped or unpro unreleased series called um uh, star wars detours for lucasfilm um dawn of the crudes at dreamworks and, and you know over time you meet a lot of people in the industry and those people recommend you for jobs. And one of them was Jenna Boyd, who was the then development um, head of development at Nickelodeon, 
who wanted to introduce me to Eric Robles, who was a writer she had uh, and creator, an artist who was, you know, working on developing a series and she wanted us to meet and thought we would get along and be able to work together. And boy, was she right. <laughs> it was. That project didn't go anywhere, by the way, but Glitch Tech got created. It was, uh, what was it? when chocolate and peanut butter uh, combined. Yes. You know? Yes, we were great favors. I think, uh, yeah, I was the chocolate, maybe. You're the peanut. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, because that happened, uh, all the magic really began once we met. But um, my journey is a very crazy long journey, which I don't think... Um, we have enough time to cover, <laughs> so I'll just kind of try to truncate a lot of it. But um, you know, long story short, is uh, I always wanted to be an artist. You know, uh, ever since I was a kid, I you know be drawing like most of us do. About the time I was uh, early in my early teens, I really was you know just considering the idea of like, wow, there's like actual animators who do this for a living. But I didn't know anything about the industry. I didn't know how to get into the industry. And this is pre-internet or pre anything really and not having any connections into the industry um i still had asked my parents you know if it was a way i can get into uh maybe going to school for animation but they said that it just wasn't a possibility financially to send me to any of these kinds of schools so around you know the age of 19 i had decided that i was going to do the next best thing which is uh get into law enforcement so Animation, law enforcement, two different things. Those are two completely different things, like yeah. by miles. And like, I don't even miles, like just <laughs> incomprehensible. For a kid in LA, sometimes it's, yeah, law enforcement or or the opposite, you know? Mm, just total opposite. <laughs> I was going to end up in jail doing t- tattoos or I was going to go into law enforcement because I knew the streets so well, I knew I would end up in one of these two. <laughs> I decided to, uh, to venture into law enforcement, so... You know, at the age of 17, I had graduated early from high school and uh, went directly into college uh, to study law enforcement for about two years. Um, and at the age of 19 is when I got discovered uh, by sketching in one of my professor's uh, uh, tests. You know, so I'd be sketching a bunch of drawings and doing a bunch of doodles in his test. And, you know, most of the time you get in trouble, which I did a lot of times in high school and, you know, junior high. But this time around, uh, he was really impressed with my work. Luckily, his sister-in-law worked in animation, which, uh, you know, he asked if I had a portfolio. I told him I had napkin drawings. And uh, he asked if, you know, I could put a couple of sketches together, maybe in a sketchbook. So I was really ecstatic about the idea and the possibilities of showing my work to a professional. So I did. And long story short, I got my first internship, um, which two weeks later ended up being my first official job into animation. So at the age of 19, I started working on uh, early shows in, in the mid-90s, shows like The X-Men, The Tick, Street Fighter, um, Darkstalkers, and a, b- a bunch of early Capcom-type kind of uh, shows in the 90s. And then that just continued throughout my career, you know, uh, leading till today, you know, 25 years later in, in, in this business, I've worked for every major studio that's out there um, in one capacity or another. Um, and just been a part of the industry, really kind of putting my ideas out there. And luckily, I've had a lot of great mentors out there who have guided me as a self-taught artist. Uh, so that's really a, t- a tough thing, especially when a lot of kids around my age were coming into the industry with at least school and, and being taught into the world of animation. But I always saw it as a benefit as well, because I was being taught by professionals. 
uh, in the industry. And I was just a sponge at that time, really kind of learning. But, you know, eventually it just led me to uh, creating my first show uh, for Frederator over at Nickelodeon uh, as part of Random Cartoons, which led to Fanboy and Chum Chum. And uh, we had an amazing uh, success at creating a new way of doing squash and stretch for CG animation on that show, which eventually led to winning five Emmys on that show and um, really helped me to continue from that show into an overall deal, which eventually led me to come up with the idea of uh, Glitch Text, which originally was called um, 8-Bit and High Five. Uh, and, uh, I had put this idea together because I really wanted to do something that felt like uh, the kinds of shows I grew up watching, like the original, uh, uh, Ghostbusters series, the real Ghostbusters, the animated version was something I really was enjoying at that time, rewatching and just kind of getting those feelings again of what it was like to be a kid watching these things. So I had put together an idea. I put together a storyboard and, um, I, put it in my bin of, of ideas at the time over at Nickelodeon and kind of forgot about it for a minute until Russell Hicks, which used to be the president of Nickelodeon back then, uh, came by my office one day, pulled out this box that I always had under my desk with a bunch of drawings, was looking through a bunch of my drawings, found this uh, storyboard I had done and he asked me to pitch it to him. So I ended up pitching it to him and he loved the idea. And right after that, I immediately um, you know, put this idea together and the person, the only person that I knew would really understand me would be Dan Milano after working on Monkey Quest together. And we had, uh, since we had worked on that project, we had such a great relationship and back and forth. And so I knew Dan would be the perfect guy to get my crazy ideas and try to, you know, just kind of see what the core of what I wanted to make was. And I had sent it to him and in traditional Dan Milano fashion, if you send him one idea, he'll write back to you with 25 pages of more ideas <laughs> uh, to add to, to this idea. So sure enough, he did. I was very excited about it. I felt that he had struck a kind of gold that I had been panning for because I love uh, genre pieces and I love um, supernatural comedy. And I was a huge Ghostbusters fan, like made my own costume when I was 12. You know, one of the videos I made growing up was me running around as a Ghostbuster. Um, and I was rather obsessed with the idea of doing uh, a show like that or writing, you know, for Sony potentially on that property. So I just thought he had a really brilliant idea. And I, I really love the lore and the logistics of the worlds we create. And I just had so many ideas. So I, but it was all given and, you know, I have a lot of creative friends and we all just support each other. So I was really just trying to be a friend, giving him advice in spirit and saying, hey, consider this, consider that. Here's why I think your idea has potential. Um, I'm healthfully jealous of it. I think it's fantastic. I would love to see it someday. So I want to support you. And then eventually that turned into Eric just saying, well, look, you're, you're all over this. Like, let's just, you know, work together and see what we can make of it. Um, especially since the other project that we were on was seemed like it was wrapping up. And then we just committed, you know, heart and soul, the two of us. And one of the things we dreamt of together was not just what the show could be, but the excitement of building a dream team of like meeting and working with the best people we could find who would be as excited about it as we were, because then selfishly you get to learn from and work with amazing people. And you also feel that you're 
you're supported and your project is supported and bringing so many creative minds together. So I love that about Eric too, that he had those ambitions. I knew that whatever we did, because um, a lot of projects don't go the distance, but we figured, well, no matter what happens, this is going to be fun and we're going to work with some cool people. We wanted to really create an atmosphere of, uh, I only have kind of like a, a dream version of what it must have been like to be a part of the original team at Pixar when they created Toy Story. Mm -hmm. You know, just a bunch of people just scrapping together ideas and trying to make something as great as they can. Yeah. And we wanted to create an environment that was like that, you know, for Glitch Text, where everybody could come in and be a part of this idea that we wanted to make as best as we can. And because Dan and I both had that um, as consistently throughout the production as making it ours and not just ours, like Dan and mine, but like all of ours. And I feel that, you know, because of that kind of uh, leadership, we really allowed that, uh, the ability for everybody to kind of bring their ideas and their A-game to the project. And, you know, ultimately it led to what the product is today. Yeah, that's great. Like you two kind of have found this very healthy synthesis with each other where it seems like fate has drawn you two together, right? <laughs> in a way to kind of create like something that perfectly you know, meshes right in a way. You like you like it doesn't seem like you two ever butt heads, but I don't know. I, I wouldn't I can't comment on that, right? Maybe. <laughs> in, in the best in the best most constructive way yeah yeah it's it really is uh you know i think because dan uh you know has such a healthy uh personal life and as do i you know with my family and we both have that thing where like like any relationship you know if you do bump heads you got to talk about it and you got to work it out you know right. because because you're not going anywhere, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and even though Dan and I, we started as friends, we've just become more, you know, we've become best of friends. And so in any situation, we never, you know, especially specifically with the production, we, we none of us ever felt like this was the only way to do something. Uh, we always put the project uh, first and what was best for the project was the greatest idea. The greatest idea always wins for us. And that's, I feel, was was number one for all of us. And luckily, we had Ian Graham, our supervising producer, uh, who really kind of also helped balance Dan and myself out. So between us three, we constantly would, you know, uh, balance each other out. Checks and balances were always made between us three when it came to the final uh, decision making on the project. There was a lot of fate involved, actually. And Ian Graham would point that out every so often when just amazing things would seem to coalesce for us um, or things would go terribly wrong and yet the aftermath would lead to something incredible. But um, it was the right time in our lives because we both had the priorities of families at this point and um, we both had already created a show, uh, each of us, and you know had had plenty of experiences working for people and we didn't know what kind of mistakes we were going to be making but we were pretty sure we wanted to steer clear of ones we'd felt that others had made before us particularly those who really you know put ego first or who were very rigid when they didn't need to be or who didn't appreciate the the efforts of people involved and the value of listening and we would talk about those things you know and so young people need to know that their worst experiences will always be educational to them in a positive way if they look at it that way and decide, well, you know, we're, we're going to try to run our show in a way we hope is much more healthy. And it is about knowing that no matter what's going on, you know, our identity and our mental health is not tied up in the show. 
so we can, you know, we don't have to have knockdown, drag out dramatic arguments because it's ridiculous. It's cartoons, you know, we're here to create something. We take it very seriously, but you also need emotional maturity. Yeah, there's definitely no ego attached to the project as far as like who it belongs to or who came up with the best ideas or any of that stuff. It really was kind of this environment where um, both Dan and I didn't just, you know, we don't have that kind of ownership where it was like, well, this is my idea or this is my project. It was our project consistently, like with all of us. And we just all wanted to be a part of something special together. Yeah, both of you have a very, you know, have a very extensive, you know, history, you know, working in industry, as you've explained. But also, it seems like, like each of those projects you have both done respectively are very different from each other. And, you know, Glitch Text ultimately seems to be the most different compared to everything else you have described and named <laughs> and credited. So like, what were just some of the things that you can take away from those past experiences that you were playing, you know, that you ended up bringing on to Glitch Text? Or like, how did you approach, um, you know, Glitch Text um, with these sort of backgrounds that you both had? For one thing, it's all proscenium, whether it's puppetry, live action, or animation, we're all cinephiles, and most of our crew is as well. We love cinema, camera placement, lighting, music, dialogue. Those things are universal to all these formats. So that's the common denominator. And then when you produce, you're constantly trying to make something out of either nothing or as little as you may have. It never seems quite enough. And I know Eric had to be super resourceful making Fanboy and Chum Chum to stretch the limits of what CGI was able to do at the time. And that was definitely a factor that we would talk about, you know, learning from that pipeline. Yeah, definitely. And I, I never saw myself as only an action guy, only a cartoony guy or any of that stuff. I just love to tell stories, whether they're funny or whether they're action oriented or, uh, you know, heartfelt, whatever they are. Like, it, just as much as I enjoy movies, I like making all kinds of genres, right? You know, the things that I've learned in production has been more of like the filmmaking side of things and artistically uh, drawing styles and techniques, um, you know, storyboarding, you know, to uh, designing props, to designing backgrounds. To de it's, it's been everything, you know. Uh, so I just brought all these tools that I've learned throughout the years into each project consistently and the more projects I worked on, the more I was equipped with these tools to uh, create these projects or be a part of these projects. So Glutex is basically an amalgamation of, of all the things that I love um, and I've studied throughout the years and I just try to kind of, you know, put them together. I feel that the job of a showrunner and leader isn't to be the person who does it all, but to be the person who helps bring the people together that are necessary to make these projects happen. Um, you know, that is, I feel like Dan's job and my job is to really kind of put all these uh, people in place. And of course, yes, we're behind the stories and we're behind the, uh, we're part of every little piece of it, but it's not our job to do it all. Our, our job is to uh, bring together the proper team. So what I learned throughout the years is really to respect the team because I, for so many years, was a part of the team and I've been on productions where you just weren't respected for what you did and you were just another tool in the toolbox um, where I wanted uh, to be a part of something different. And Dan also, you know, had that kind of mindset. So 
together, we just brought experience to the table uh, from all the different kinds of projects that we worked on. So yeah. it's, not, it, it's not to say that, you know, we only do one thing or the other. Like Dan can do comedy. He can do dramatic. He can do heartfelt stories. And I feel that Glitch Text really kind of hits all those marks, which is a huge, huge uh, accomplishment, I think, uh, as far as creating a project that has all these boxes that you can check. And I feel that we were able to kind of bring all those years of experience that we both have into something. Yeah, it was a crazy but responsible experiment based on the experience we had had. So, you know, I'd, I'd honed uh, through a lot of trial and error and a lot of experiences, um, the writing format and how to approach uh, the story, uh, particularly in features, the structuring of features was very helpful. Um, and then we didn't, again, you don't know how far these things are going to go. So there's this attitude of like, let's just go for it. Let's just try to shoot for the moon. And we did have a lot of criteria based on other people's experience. Like Ian Graham has been on so many amazing series over the years, many of them at Netflix, Avatar, Korra, SpongeBob, uh, so many. So we kind of looked to him to say, what did you feel that did or didn't work about the pipelines you've been involved in? If you could change it, if you could structure it differently, what would you want to try? Um, and the same to our board artists. You're bored of doing the same thing a million times. What would you like to do that's a little different? And then parsing all that information, and we would even do it at a corporate level. We'd ask like people in the marketing department and you know the toy department, like, hey, you know, we're just getting involved in this show. If you could have it be whatever you wanted, what would you want? And we just data gathered and we tried to remain conscious of all those things as we developed to say, wouldn't it be great if we could be action oriented, like just amazing action, but really sweet character driven stories. Wouldn't it be great if we could be a TV show, but write the stories almost with like a live action or even a feature sort of sophistication to the structure. And what if we could do X, Y, Z, you know, endless list. And, you know, we shot for it. <laughs> like, and that really enriched it. And our job was to be filters and try to make all those various things uh, work together if they could. And we had great support from the network in doing that as well. Yeah, I think that goes into, you know, another question, what were the show's specific influences? In fact, actually, I think a better way to phrase that question, you know, what led to finalizing the overall style and direction of the show, I would say, as opposed to any other way. Yeah. Um, this is revealing of the generation that I grew up in, but off the top of my head, I remember a series titled Reboot, yep. which is entirely 3D CGI, you know, CGI rendered, like, to, you know, what, and because it was like a, a game show, it literally was a video game show. It's a, it's a show, but, you know, taking place in a video game kind of like, well, they were taking place in a computer, I believe, right? Yeah. And to, and it's, yeah, to, and they were, it was just kind of, cons you know, back then people probably thought, oh, wow, this is amazing looking, but, you know, <laughs> and it kind of, it kind of aged well looking, you know, looking at clips of it, it's not that bad looking. Um, but yeah, it, it, it used that style to really hammer down that, yeah, this is a show about video games and um, paying honor to video games in a way. But also at the other end of the spectrum, I also think of uh, the Quest world setting in The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, which really did not age well at all. Yes. You know, especially compared to Reboot. Um, you know, I, I don't think they were even that far apart in terms of like their respective production timelines. I don't think, I think they actually were kind of close and contemporary to each other, but. Which is interesting, yeah. You know, not to say that 2D animation has 
not been present in games it, it always has been and especially more recently in indie game projects like it's been like a, a really interesting medium that people have been exploring yes how to essentially uh, like the team like settle on you know glitch text being presented the way it is as opposed to anything else you know while, while also ensuring it still embodies what it's conveying which is kind of like a celebration but also uh like you know an endearing you know poking you know endearing satire video games it is it's it's action comedy satire yeah, it's everything episodic <laughs> serialized and it is based on so many direct influences we had growing up um, and also like a feeling we wanted to have, you know, from the kind of cartoons we grew up with. But to tee up Eric, I think one of the things that was prevalent in everyone's mind that was a good starting point is that we did want it to be a 2D show. Mm-hmm. And so starting there to say, all right, now off of that, what kind of elements do we want to pull in? I think as far as uh, like animation goes, um, I, I definitely uh, can appreciate the shows that you mentioned, you know, uh, for what they were doing at the time. Um, none of those shows actually uh, were in my head uh, in creating, uh, you know, early creating this show. Um, I was a lot more influenced by um, French anime, mm-hmm. uh, personally. Um, so I was watching a lot of uh, Wakfu uh, yes, at the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. So I just really enjoyed uh, what Wakfu was doing in the sense of uh, comedy and action and just the, the set pieces that they had, individual stories they had, keeping the characters on a journey. I just really enjoyed that kind of storytelling. I enjoyed the animation. I enjoyed just uh, everything as a package of what that show was kind of about. So you know, this was back in like 2006, I believe I, I really discovered that project or that show, I should say. Um, and I just followed that show and was so in awe of how they produced that show because that show was done in Flash. And when you look at the show, th- there's a production value to the show that is just amazing for that time period when they were producing it. And yeah, I just remember looking at the production and wondering why there was moments where I felt the animation was really stiff, but then all of a sudden I would have fluid animation uh, being thrown at me. And then by the time the show was over, I did not pay attention at those, you know, puppet looking uh, moments. I was more in awe of the story. I was more in awe of the fluid animation that I saw in those sequences that really mattered. And I just had so much respect for how they put that production together. So I was really in awe and influenced by, um, you know, a lot of French anime at that time. And uh, also, you know, Scott Pilgrim was something that we were all in awe. Mm-hmm. You know, we were just like, man. Yeah, all the films this- of Edgar Wright, who had such a video game and anime in- inspired way of doing visual storytelling. So, so, you know, we were feeding off like, you know, the, the times that were happening for us at that moment. So it wasn't, you know, even though we go back to the Ghostbusters and Men in Black, it really is just kind of picking up pieces throughout the years of the things that we truly love. And, you know, a lot of the things that uh, come up a lot of times in these types of interviews are like, there's a Saturday morning feel to your show, right? And I think that really just comes from things that we all grew up watching and loving, whether it's reboot, whether it's this, I feel like Glitch Text has a little bit of a lot of cool stuff that we all kind of grew up with, you know, whether it's Street Fighter or whether it's Castlevania, there's just a lot of cool stuff in there. That's very that- important to point out that like in, when we would sit down and talk about those things, we wouldn't say like, well, we want something that looks like X or feels like Y. We'd sort of say, well, I always loved 
such and such. And then we'd sit there and say, why? Why now as adults do we still talk about it? Why do we connect with it? What do we love about it? And we would talk about the feeling you had and what it meant to you and what um, what the what the potential of it was as, as a child. And we would also t- talk to so many of our peers and consultants who were also most of them creators themselves in various fields and have those discussions together. So it was less like, let's just take all this imagery and cram it together. Let's just, let's take these feelings and let's kind of deconstruct why we felt those things worked and then use them as inspiration for what we were putting together. And we just kept laughing because we thought, wow, you know, we can be sort of derivative of so many wonderful things. And yet we're creating something wholly original at the same time. So if we talked about Reboot, it would be a conversation of like, why is that kind of hold up? And why does that feel good? What did they get right? You know, like they did their research. They're really smart. They, they had some compelling characters, you know. Um, why is Avatar number one on Netflix 15 years later? You know, and they're beautiful answers to that question. It is just like a really well-constructed tale with resonant, timeless themes. And so it was important that we not just make a show about video games. We wanted to make a show about characters and we wanted to do it in a cinematic way that drew from all these influences. And we also knew that we couldn't do it alone. So we would literally say to our consultants like, Imagine the worst case scenario for this show, like the worst, most hacky version of this video game show you could imagine. What would that look like? What, what should we not do? And then everyone came to the table with really passionate ideas about all the tropes and, you know, all the cliches to avoid and the lack of like earnest representation of the culture. And, you know, and a lot of it we agreed with immediately and had already felt a lot of things we had never considered. So it was wonderful to be able to kind of, again, have this checklist almost of, you know, things that just helped us keep the integrity of what we wanted it to be in our minds. Um, And then the design influence came from various sources. When Scott Kakuda came on board, he brought his own influences. I know a lot of the team were influenced by uh, Gorillaz uh, music videos and by anime like Fully Cooley and, you know, um, stuff to, from Gynex and Trigger. And then also there's just what's appealing to the eye. The hardest thing is just taking all these ideas and things we love and then just kind of filtering it through one <laughs> filter, right? And then see what comes out and, and capturing the beauty of it all. Yeah, it's weird. You got to consider it all as crazy as I just said, but then you got to be willing to throw it away and then just look at some drawings. You know, another thing that I wanted to make sure of, even in design, is that um, the characters didn't feel flat, that they were volumetric, that they had, you know, because we had gone through such a period of uh, what is a rubber hose type style shows, you know, that were on like Cartoon Network or what have you. So there was just kind of like this style. And, and I wanted to try to bring some of this kind of traditional style back where, you know, uh, uh, there was more anatomy to the forms of the characters and a little more realistic kind of like uh, um, features to the characters. And there's a softness to the characters, whether it's in the eyes or the the, the roundness of the face that felt very kind of even uh, Aladdin Disney-ish. You know, if you look at some of the kind of the immediate features, it just feels kind of soft. Yeah, so so there's certain like little, little things that I just wanted to kind of make sure uh, 
I was trying to kind of bring back like a kind of classic style, but again, you can't just go full classic. You have to kind of find an edge to it uh, that makes it your own and, you know, relevant to uh, design today. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, everything you mentioned, it seems like you're drawing influences from things that themselves were a retranslation of something else prior. And it's like this chain effect of like, oh, this thing was great. So I'm going to like, you know, draw inspiration from this. But then that thing also drew inspiration from this. You know, there's like this never ending chain of like, (laughs) just all this stuff, you know, and it kind of all comes down in like a blender and you blend it all together and hope it works, right? Sometimes it's subconscious and it's just working its way in. And other times we are sitting there, nerds that we are, and like talking about it and deconstructing it because we're just, we love to kind of ask that question, you know, why, why did I feel something from, you know, when in, in enjoying this other thing that meant something to me, can I try to put that into words, like maybe why I connected with it and then use that as a touchstone or at least a theory or an idea of why this might resonate with people. Right. And even with style, like ultimately, like you'll end up creating your own style if you're an artist, Um, like don't matter how many influences you have, uh, you'll always kind of end up bringing it back to something that belongs to you. Uh, that's just something that's going to happen because that's just how, you know, once you develop what you are as an artist and who you are as an artist, I should say, um, then immediately you'll just kind of fall to this place that belongs to you regardless as, uh, of, of how many influences that you have, you know. So long story short is uh, no matter what, your style, whatever your style is, will always be influenced, uh, you know, and be a part of, you know, whatever you're working on, even though the, the, the show might look completely different, there's always some kind of influence of who you are as an artist in your work. So I would like to explore how much of your personal relationships with games translate into this universe. And, you know, like, you know, can you go into more about your, even your current relationships with games? How much has that changed over the years? Or maybe how has that even changed over the co- course of this project's production in a way? Like, you know, since you're working with other people as well, you know, you might be hearing other perspectives and hearing things about other people's experiences with games. We did a lot of research early on, um, you know, psychology profile of uh, gamers of all ages and all sorts of gaming and gamification, how it's really part of our society now in so many ways and how it's actually been in many forms before. Um, You know, I definitely grew up like a Nintendo kid uh, and I used to play Atari before that and we both grew up in the arcade age where we were pumping quarters into arcade machines and going to birthday parties at like uh, arcade pizza restaurants. So it was very much part of the culture growing up. And then, you know, I became a PC gamer for a while and eventually moved over to console. And, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by it, particularly role-playing games because there's a story element and a character element. And we worked with so many people with so many diverse gaming tastes. Uh, and part of the show was sitting down and just talking about all the different genres, why they worked, what they had in common, what was filmic about them, what would be interesting to use um, for our show. And it wasn't so much a checklist of just things we wanted to see, but things that we could use to hopefully tell character stories with. Um, you know, I've been stuck in Castlevania, so we have an episode about that, but it's more to do with that feeling of being stuck and the, the fact that some friends may find like a shame in not achieving what someone else has achieved. And so it's really about the way the game makes you feel than it is about the game itself. Yeah. I think, I think feeling is a key thing, um, in anything, uh, especially, for me personally, feeling is everything. Um, 
when working on projects, I'm always, you know, chasing a feeling uh, when it comes to ideas and projects that I'm working on. And, you know, I, I think Glitch Text really consistently, it's always, we were asking ourselves, what's the feel behind it? But uh, more specific to your question is, uh, I mean, games like Dan said has always, you know, they've always been a part of live lives. Ever since we were kids, we were part of the generation of the, um, you know, Ataris, Nintendos, uh, you know, uh, just the whole evolution of it all. And we've been a part of it, uh, playing them. And the swapping of games, you know, borrowing games from friends, blowing out the dust on cartridges. Like, we've just always yeah. been a part of, of the evolution of seeing the growth of it. And now what's so amazing about it is um, both of our kids are, are, are gamers as well. And uh, it allows us to be a part of that new uh, evolution with them. And in this show in particular, we we didn't come into this like knowing um everything that we've learned now uh we felt like we didn't know we we felt disconnected you know from the industry of games and what was going on in the culture so um one of the smart things that dan wanted to do right out front was saying like let's get people around us who really know this culture so we went ahead and um we, we, we got a bunch of consultants. We got Ashley Birch, Felicia Day. I mean, uh, we got uh, game developers like Mike Micah. Uh, we surrounded ourselves with professionals who knew this industry a lot more than we did. Asked the hard questions of like, like Dan was saying earlier, like what are you tired of, of seeing as far as uh, shows that are out there and what's not being represented correctly as far as the game culture? So it allowed us to really um, study the industry before we dove into it and just made up a bunch of episodes about video game monsters. We want it to ring true if you're, if you're a developer, if you're a game designer, uh, if you're a fan of games, if you work in tech support, we, we tried to let gamer culture be to us what you know aerospace once used to be to shows like star trek where they were futuristic fantasy shows on some level but they were borrowing from you know grounded and realistic um sci-fi concepts so the glitch techs actually you know do use um you know coding and programming language we try to approach the logic of the show and how the glitches work in in a um you know a futurist kind of interpretation of you know what this kind of sci-fi could be you know we tried to be almost hard sci-fi and really try to make it something that was um plausible in the context of the show and then also we didn't want it to be the kind of satire or parody that made fun of gamers game developers we wanted to be a very even-handed look at the culture in all aspects and a tremendous amount of respect and like earnest appreciation of it because it is amazing it's something it's a form of entertainment that has just grown and blossomed so much over the years. And one of the things we all talked about is that nobody had ever really done an earnest tribute. And, you know, nobody was really taking the time to, you know, look at these nerdy characters as fully dimensional people who are filled with uh, esteem and who, you know, that celebrates intelligence and it celebrates fandom, you know, and it can also look at those aspects of those things that can also be like at times ridiculous because fanaticism you know gets a little crazy but it comes from like a pure childlike place and we want to love that we don't want to make fun of it but it's also kind of cathartic to look at the roots of the fanaticism and where it comes from and how we identify with things and how that can get out of control 
So as far as games go, our kids have opened us up to games maybe we weren't playing when we were kids. And then those elements certainly end up in the show and all the people we work with recommend uh, games to us. We had every game imaginable available to all of us. It was the best show to work on because we could just play any genre of video game. And we had a lot of gamers in our crew. That was another big part of it. A lot of our crew members were just gamers. And so, you know, we had our, our game area, our, our area where we had our game set up and uh, everybody would just play games. So, so we were making shows of games about about games and we were playing them at the same time. So it was just nice to be around, uh, you know, production that really kind of was in that headspace of playing games as well. It let it all be very organic to the material as opposed to a show that was trying to use video games as like um, a gimmick or a soapbox. You know, we did not want the show to be powered by nostalgia. We wanted it to be really entertaining for somebody who's never played a video game or for a parent to watch with a child and enjoy because it's just a fun, good show. But along the way, there are those like homages and little touches by people who know what games mean to them and who would see opportunities in everything from like, not just a joke, but like a scene transition or a design element or something that would ring true. Uh, the music, certainly. I, I can't remember specific titles off the top of my head. Maybe it's the best I don't, but I, I definitely remember there are a lot of series out there that kind of pay homage to nerdy culture or in some way, you know, again, satirize like, you know, gamer culture in a way, but it's very mean spirited, Yes, you know, and you quite don't know, like, who's the audience for this? Is this for the nerds only, or is it for people outside that window, you know, like, and it's kind of exclusive in that way. Like, I'm not sure who is this meant to entertain or who is this intended yes. to make fun of, right? It's not very educational. And in a way, it shuts out a lot of people it's dishonest to the majority of the culture yeah and in a way it like makes you wonder too that it, it probably is a very you know it probably is a perspective that is correct but it's also maybe just one perspective right yeah one perspective repeated because you know female uh gamers mm -hmm. uh are treated yeah. like you know rare unicorns when for quite a while women have been 50 percent of the gaming community um and you know things like uh, nerds who succeed despite their otherness or despite their their limitations um, when the majority of, of people now have at, at any age at this point have gamification in their culture somewhere and are nerds of one kind or another about whatever their interests may be and so it doesn't seem to make sense or be truthful even at all to do something that would attempt to like marginalize uh, that group. Yeah, right. And like, what I really appreciate about the show is that, you know, not only are you just showing characters being who they are, you know, they're also like diverse, you know, diverse in the front in both their cultural background and just how they look. It, I really appreciate it, I'm going to say that. But also like in terms of the types of players, you know, quote, like that they are like, you know, Amiko who herself is kind of what would be a casual gamer in a way, but nonetheless, that doesn't make her useless. That's still like all these, all these characters that have different experiences are are working together as part of a team and they're still all still crucial in many ways in figuring out their problems 
Yes. You know, and that I, I, you know, I w- would like to go into how, you know, unfortunately, there still is like many neg- negative and toxic aspects to gaming culture, you know, from the top down, whether it's in the industry or whether it's tr- through just people experiencing games culture as players. Yeah. But of course, there's like all these positives that are clearly, you know, clearly visibly being made towards that. Like, you know, there's more developers that have previously gotten noticed, you know, different groups of people of different backgrounds that probably initially had obstacles to get into the industry. You know, like you said, too, like, as you know, as both parents, you know, I think the players um, of games are getting even much younger in terms of like, getting introduced to games much younger. Mm -hmm. And because of like parents like you, where, you know, you grew up with this stuff, and you're open minded and introducing these interests to your kids. You know, like gone, like you know, it's not as it's it's it kind of like games are not as much of a foreign niche concept as they used to be. Like in general, there has That's been this right. kind of yeah, there has been this surgence of like nerdy culture seeping into the mainstream, and that anyone can like it, and that's like a good thing. Like it's kind of not this ostracized thing in her pop culture anymore. No, um, not a shameful secret. Yeah, and it yeah, takes defensiveness out of the equation. Uh, the the ferocious um, self identity as a gamer and the loyalty to a specific brand or genre or whatever, if if that isn't tempered with other senses of self, it becomes very narrow-minded, defensive, and then toxicity can, can come from that. And it does exist. And on one hand, we tried to take, again, kind of a Star Trek approach where to me, Star Trek originally created a future of idealism where we had evolved beyond racism and we'd evolved beyond petty politics to kind of grow as people. And so we thought, well, our characters should be somewhat idealized. They're pretty emotionally healthy. They communicate well. Early on, we were like, you're not going to see an episode where anyone really even thinks to talk about Miko as a girl gamer or judge her for it. Um, this isn't that world. We, we're, we're past it, and we want these characters to show it's not even really a factor for them. But at the same time, their well-intentioned goals can sometimes lead to anxiety, worry, uh, and they can be a little bit corrupted. So we did an episode called Alpha Leader where High Five is very well-intentioned and a very positive character throughout, but he kind of adopts a slightly toxic sense of self because he doesn't know how to handle uh, himself and he's defensive that people may judge him. Um, so, and a character like Mitch Williams, who you'll see a lot in the second season, You know, he's a character who is very fiercely protective of his identity as a gamer because he doesn't have much else. Mm -hmm. So he's the closest you'll see to toxic. But even Mitch is a a professional at what he does for the most part, and he has his own version of integrity. So, you know, we're trying to not completely ignore these factors, but to try to represent them in a helpful way way that hopefully just helps people see what's possible when you know we all have a common goal and we all love the same thing at its core and we can sort of embrace the differences that we have instead of see them as something to push against do you feel that you know glitch text fits in this larger narrative when it comes to you know this this sounds a little dramatic but when it comes to i guess changing these perceptions of what the games community means, you know, like, you know, in, in response to our talks about like, yeah, there's unfortunately still negative aspects to it that needs to be desperately changed, especially when it comes to being a more inclusive thing for everyone. And again, in response to like how there's even more younger players, you, you know, there's more younger players and there's more younger players being exposed to 
like kind of the more even seedier things that are kind of going on in the conversation about the industry, like microtransactions and stuff. Like I think a lot about Fortnite and Fortnite, like I don't think even thought that they would have like a young player base. Like it's a lot of kids playing Fortnite. I don't think initially when the game came out that their marketing thought of that, but yet that's what that is. And that's a game that depends on that system to succeed. So like, do you, do you see, you know, I, I, again, like it's a very dramatic question, but do you see how, do you see like ways that the series can be very positive and it's an influential in terms of like the games committee and like who watches it, right? We hope so. Yeah, we, we can only hope that that's what we've created is something that can uh, positively influence the community. I mean, we, we can't say that we went out there specifically to, uh, you know, put those messages out there right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I mean, right from the get-go, we just wanted to do something that was fun and, and that meant something to us. Um, but, but, you know, always good natured and with good intentions. And I think by checking a lot of the boxes that we did as we continued to make it, we didn't have all the answers up front. You know, the answers came to us as the, the show evolved. And these kinds of messages are, are I think, positive messages uh, on top of just being a fun show to watch. So we hope to attract kids and adults uh, together in watching the show with, you know, this really cool concept that may look really cool and what have you. But um, as they're watching it, we hope that they, you know, see the layers of messages that we're putting in there that we feel that they're positive. And if it can influence the community to kind of think things out differently and uh, maybe think of players differently and the other people who are online uh, differently in a positive way, then that would be a, a huge plus for us and a huge victory for us, I believe. We hope that people can see enough of themselves, maybe in aspects of the characters, that with enough good humor that it can be somewhat sobering in times where you might cross a line. And as we consulted with people on the show and found out what was important to them and in talking about the industry and their own experiences growing up. So many stories surfaced about people who had delightful experiences in the culture and those who had negative experiences. And not just in the gaming industry, but the culture of our country and the world has been so tumultuous lately. And it's Mm -hmm. absolutely been on all of our minds about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what we're putting into the world and the change we want to see. And again, I'm, I'm like not shutting up about it, but like, Star Trek meant so much to me, and I'm a white, like, middle-aged male. Um, And when I hear stories of what it meant to, you know, people of color or to, you know, um, people who identify, who have different gender identities, like, what it can mean to just sort of be acknowledged, I look back at glitch texts and think, gosh, if I could do it over again, we'd want to do so much more. We didn't do enough. You know, (laughs) at, at the same time, I'm proud of what we did try to do. And in a way that wasn't a lesson because we don't have all the answers and we don't believe, we don't think kids believe in stories that wrap things up very neatly and solve every problem. But we acknowledge it and we try to have the characters have a good amount of emotional maturity and the ability to be self-deprecating and to kind of center themselves or let the other people in their lives center them when they need it. And that's a big theme you'll see a lot. If one character is kind of off the rails, another character is there to kind of help ground them a little bit. And sometimes they argue and sometimes, you know, it's a struggle, but they are able to, you know, have those interactions and come out of it as a team. So that was the five and Miko dynamic. And we extended that to the rest of the team that these be 
the kind of gamers that we would love to be and play with. Right. It takes like actually showing this idealized world in a way like like this is possible because if you don't see. Yeah, if you don't see it, you know, similar to representation, if you don't see it, you know, how how would someone young and easily susceptible to many influences would know that's possible, right? Like how, like that's something like a, would not come into your head if you don't see that sort of world existing. Yeah. It's not introduced to you as a concept. Yeah. And we're proud to be among, you know, we're fans of peer shows that are really clever, amazing shows and have dimensional characters. And, you know, like I'm, I'm watching Owl House right yeah, now and yeah. we enjoy Kipo and um, Dragon Prince. And, you know, we hope it just continues to be a, a trend and that young creators out there understand that it's not just about how cool your idea is. There's a million cool ideas, but what do you want to say? You know, what do you want to put out in the world? is a major factor. Well, thanks to both of you for this very, very insightful, enlightening conversation. Honestly, I do mean it. I think very eye-opening to anyone who will tune in and listen to this. Hope so. Hopefully also very educational too. And yeah, where can people find the series and where can folks follow you too, if they so wish to? So you can find us on uh, uh, Netflix uh, and you can watch season one now, depending on when you're hearing this. Um, Season two uh, will be out uh, August 17th on Monday. So you can watch the entire series all at once if you would dare, uh, <laughs> which will take a while. But it, I, I promise you this, it'll definitely be worth your while. Uh, season two uh, is amazing. And we got a lot of great episodes coming your way. And you can uh, find me on Instagram under Eric Robles or Robles with four R's, R-O-B-L-E-S. Or you can find me on Twitter as legit Eric Robles. And I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Dan Milano. And um, my Instagram, I forgot. I forgot my Instagram. <laughs> I mostly just cover, I'm so overwhelmed that I mostly just cover the one. I believe I'm just Dan Milano there as well. I, I'm assuming um, you don't use it a lot. Is, no, is I that, don't. I'm just gonna, okay, that's fine. You can reach me on Twitter uh, <laughs> at, uh, at Dan Milano on Twitter. And um, yeah, we're, the outpouring of fan art and support the show has received online has been amazing. Um, these are the 20 episodes that we produced for Nickelodeon Animation that have now been released in two parts on Netflix. Um, and it constitutes you know, our first official cycle of episodes. Uh, fans continue to love it and Netflix and Nickelodeon decide they want more then you know we have episodes that are ready to be animated um, that we would love to continue our process with until then we're on hiatus and waiting for words so we appreciate all the support we can get a lot of people are using hashtag glitch text uh, when they tweet about us so check out all the art and all the feedback that's out there yeah and I'm, I'm definitely on my instagram putting a lot of behind the scenes artwork and just you know miscellaneous content and uh we should be releasing the full version of the main title song which is about two minutes long uh hopefully uh possibly this weekend coming up uh before the actual release or on the release we just released a crew art book of art made by um, our uh, domestic and overseas crew that they wanted to contribute and to say thank you to fans. Um, And we also have a folder of resources that we're sharing online with um, scripts, um, story guides, design guides, things that people can use to educate themselves uh, about the show. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Thank you again. Thank you. We really appreciate the interest. Mm -hmm.